It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's today's special guest, Elijah Robertson. In Luke chapter 1, and I'll be reading from selected verses 32, 35, and 76, it says, He will be great and will be called the Son of of the Most High. Of course, referring to Christ. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And in verse 76, this is actually transitioning to Zechariah prophesying about his own son, John the Baptist. I want you to notice what it says here. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His way. You'll notice in these texts, the first two that I read reference the Most High as the Father. Speaking of Christ to come. And in the last one, Zechariah is prophesying about his own son, John the Baptist. And when he speaks of him, notice what he says about his son. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. So speaking of Jesus. So in the first two verses, it uses the same words, the Most High, to speak of the Father. And then when Zechariah is talking about his own son, he refers to his own son being the prophet of the Christ. But he uses the same term that is used of the Father for the one to come, his son. The Most High. This term is the same term that they use to translate a title for God used in the Old Testament in the Septuagint. So in the Greek Old Testament, or the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, the Septuagint, it uses this term to uh, translate this idea of El Elyon, or the Most High God. So when it's trying to translate this title of God, El Elyon, the Most High God, it's this term that's used. And we notice that in these passages, it uses that same term to speak, of course, of the Father. But then in the last verse, it speaks of the coming Christ. With this title. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Speaking of Jesus Christ. El Elyon, by definition, is asking us 
how big is your God? Stating that he is not just big, but he is, he is the most high. And I think it is appropriate to ask ourselves a question. Not only how big is your God, but how big is your Christ? How big is our Jesus? Like, really? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you would humble yourself to communicate to feeble beings like us. Lord, we desire to rejoice in our feebleness, to rejoice in our finiteness, but the way we want to rejoice is in the reality of your reality, of, of who you are, of your greatness, of your infinite glory and loveliness and worth. That is how I want to delight in my finite, feeble reality. We are so grateful that you would take the time to continually remind us of you. What glory is it that you would just again and again give us the reality of your infinite glory and greatness. May we delight in you all the more as we leave this place today, I ask that we would behold the loveliness of Christ afresh as we gaze upon this title, this description that you were pleased to use for yourself and pleased that men would apply it to you. I thank you in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, our term today is El Elyon, the Most High God. It's, it's a very revealing term, and yet it's a very simple term, a term that one might say is somewhat redundant. I mean, by definition, do we need to use the term, do we need to, to clarify that He really is the Most High God? Do we need to clarify that He is really that great? I mean, just by definition, if you use the proper name of God, is He not already that wonderful? Is He not already infinitely more than we could conceive? And yet I would contend that this is not redundant. It's what we need. Friends, it's what we need. How fickle are we? Like, really? How many times do we need to be brought back to the forefront of our reality again, the reality of God? How many times do we need to be brought before our reality again, the reality of Him? And I think this term does that wonderfully. For it calls us to focus on the transcendent reality of our God over and above the earthly realities that, uh, and it begs the question, how big is our God? 
It calls us to gaze upon the transcendent reality of God above and beyond our circumstantial situations. Come on, let's not lie. How often does my circumstantial situation seem to overwhelm the reality of God. And I, we find, I find myself, right, in the corner of the closet begging God to come and to do something. As if He's not really there. As if He's not really sovereign and in control. Have you ever asked yourself, have you ever just decided to look and say, what does my life actually speak, proclaim, about what I believe of God? Listen, I like to talk. And it's easy to proclaim things out of this mouth. What is my life actually saying? How many times does that circumstantial situation, when we really look at it, admittedly, it doesn't proclaim this. But this is what's so wonderful. It's like we, we don't really, don't get me wrong, but we don't really need this title. It's not like adding anything, but it's calling us to gaze once again upon him. And that's what I think is so lovely about this reminder that he is El Elyon. That our God, the I Am, is over all infinitely. He is transcendently above and beyond. How big is our God? How big is our Jesus? Well, what I have two simple objectives. I want to talk about the transcendent reality of God. And then I want to remind us of the necessity that our Jesus is that same. Yes, taking on true humanity, but he is true deity. And it is absolutely vital and absolutely wonderful. So what we'll do is we'll define these two terms, El and Elion, and then we'll put them together as that that name. And then we will just seek to just take a look. As I said, they're kind of like a poetic form of just this reminder calling us once again to remember that He is a transcendent reality above and beyond all the earthly realities, all the earthly circumstantial situations. So we'll take a look in the Old Testament a little bit and then I I hope to run to the New Testament quickly and remind us of the necessity and the wonder that when Zechariah says to his son or prophesies about his son, you will be the prophet of El Elyon, the Most High, the one who was and is and is to come. That is our joy. 
That is our glory. So let's look at these two terms. We'll first start with the term El. El is a, one of the oldest designa- designations of deity in the ancient world. Its definition seems to assert several things about the knowledge and thought pattern of deity in ancient times. So in prehistoric, so to speak, uh, that time period, those people, this would be considered a title that comes out of that. And it, it gives us a glimpse into what people then thought about deity. Walter Eichrott suggests that it stresses distance between God and man. It is not the feeling of kinship with, the, with deity. Right? You know, when I say kinship, it's not like, you know, buddy, buddy, we're friends with God. But this term, this idea of El, which, by the way, let me just state right up front, it means strength and it means power. This abstract concept. So it doesn't stress a feeling of friendship or kinship with deity, but Walter Eichrott goes on to say, but one of fear and one of trembling in the face of his overwhelming majesty. They do not identify the Godhead with any natural object, but describe it as the power that stands behind nature or the overruling, I love this, will. The overruling will. Will, determining factor behind nature, creation, all that is. It's interesting, I think, that maybe, and it's believed that this term comes from a prehistoric revelation of God. So the idea is that God revealed, and we see some of those in the Old Testament, how God revealed. And that just humanity took that, and it kind of got warped a little bit. But it was probably taken from an actual revelation of God to mankind. And then you might find it interesting that we're talking about, uh, you know, people, pagans. We're talking about just not, not Judaism or something like that, and yet... They had a concept of God that wasn't like what we would consider pagan today. In the sense of worshiping the sun and worshiping nature and all these other things. They had an understanding that God must be some strength, some will, some determining factor behind all that is. They had a concept of transcendence. Man. How right were they? And I want to submit to you that there's, that is where you and I must start if we are going to truly behold God. He is unlike anything that is created. It may bear witness to the Creator, but the Creator does, ne- does not bear semblance to it. You cannot go the other way. You can talk about how creation reveals him, but you cannot talk the other way. You cannot talk about how God is similar or reveals something of creation. He is transcendently other, and that is where we must start. In in Numbers 12, 13, Moses used this term, this term, El. 
to speak about God when Moses, when Aaron and Miriam rebel against him. And what happens? Miriam gets leprosy. And they cry out, Moses, pray for her. You know, do something. And look at how Moses prays. Now, look at Moses is writing this about himself. He authored these books, right? And it's, he'll, he'll speak in the third person, and then he'll move into the first person. And he will use this term, power or strength, referring to God. And Moses is very clear. So he says in Numbers 12, 13, And Moses cried unto the Lord, so that's Moses speaking in the third person, and he uses the proper name of God there, Yahweh, right? He uses the proper name, saying, and here's what he actually says, though, Heal, heal her now, O L. He uses this, just that L, just that, that generic term for deity. And he clarifies to us that he is speaking about the true God. So he, he says, in essence, heal her, O oh, strength. Heal her, O oh, ruling, determining will behind all that is. Moses understood something about God that sometimes I wonder if the evangelical church really gets. We seem to walk into these buildings with such a flippancy such a familiarity. By the way, that's one of the worst things that can happen in our life. It's become so familiar with God that we forget who we're worshiping. Elion has the idea of height or elevation. And it doesn't, it's not only used of God, it's used of, of material items or <clears throat> humanity at times. But it has this idea of Here's something, and then not just here's something else, and here, but no, here's like the highest thing. Here's the superlative of whatever we're talking about. And at times, this is again used also of the Lord. Psalm 18, 13 says, The Lord thundered in the heavens, and the highest, or Elion, gave his voice. The one who is above all gave his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. And also in Deuteronomy 28, uh, 32, 8, it says, When the Most High divided the nations, their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set bounds to the people according to the number of the children of Israel. But you see right there at the beginning, it says, When Elion, the Most High. When combined, we get our term here, El Elion, the Most High God. Uh, we see that in Psalm 57, 2, the Most High God. And, and this is... This idea of the transcendent God. I would assert to you this title is primarily one of emphasis. It clearly stresses the transcendent, infinite. And here's, here's what it is. Worth and value of our king. In reference to specific earthly value or reality. This term stresses to our feeble minds the overwhelming, transcendent, incalculable worth and value of God. It calls us back to reality out of the circumstantial reality that seems like reality, but friends, it is not reality. 
It clearly stresses the worth and value of our king. The extreme transcendent sovereignty and majesty of God and his preeminence above all things. His strength to the superlative. He is meaning to the superlative and purpose, right? He is wisdom to the superlative. Have you ever looked at Job and begin to think about the wisdom of God? It is God who brings up Job to Satan. Satan doesn't come talking about Job to God. It is God who calls him to go consider this man. And you and I know what happens next. Have you ever considered the wisdom, the infinite superlative wisdom of God in light of Job? But he is wisdom to the superlative. This is what it calls us to. He is love to the superlative. He is the causing power behind all. He is over all. That is our God. That is our God. We're going to take a little time to just run through a few passages where this is used. I think it's used about 28 times in the Bible. And a lot of those are in Psalms, which makes sense. It's such a poetic name calling us. It's trying to get past just the cognitive, but to the heart, calling us to realize the reality of God. Let's not just affirm it. Let's know it. And Psalm, and I was at first picking like just all these texts where it had it in it, and then I'm like, I just can't do that. So I picked a few, and I've got like most of the psalm in there, and, and I, didn't, I just don't know how to do it any different right now, so I'm just going to go ahead and we're going to read through some of the psalms, but I want you to get the context of these. In Psalm 7, I tried to select some of the verses there. It'll say this, it says, A, Shig- a Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now, it's not settled on exactly what context that's talking about, But as you begin to hear this psalm, can you think of the circumstantial situation that David is in? Look what it says here. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Look what he says in verse 2. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces, with none to deliver. Skipping to verse 6. This is his context, right? He's like, he's like, I'm at a place where if you don't do something, they will rip my soul apart. You and I could just begin to imagine the circumstantial reality of David right now. Skipping to verse 6, he says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Verse 8. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. And according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish righteousness. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. I love this, verse 10. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. 
God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And again, for sake of time, I'm going to skip to verse 17. Look what he says. I will give to the Lord. This is the proper name of God, right? I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord. Again, proper name of God. And then it says, El Elyon, the Most High. I mean, just, just feel where David is at. And then he begins to turn his gaze and to ascribe, you are the God of righteousness. You are the judge. It doesn't matter. I don't know exactly who this Cush is. There's thoughts on that. Um, but whatever's going on, it's a situation where he says, they're, 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 I'm at the point they're going to tear my soul to pieces like a lion. They're going to rip me to shreds. But then he turns his gaze to God. And he begins to remember that there is only one judge. There is one helper. And he places his refuge in God. He starts out that way as well. O oh Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. There is one Savior, one King. And he is what? El Elyon. I mean, he couches that. He has El, he has proper name of God, Yahweh, proper name of God, Yahweh. And then he finishes with that reminder, that poetic calling to the soul. Kind of like saying, bless the Lord, oh my soul. I'm just telling you, do it right now. Do it. Bless the Lord. I don't feel it. It's not, I mean, right now, it's like I'm a little sheep and they're lions and they've got me and they're going to tear me to shreds. But it's that, that call. I mean, he's got the proper name of God twice right there. And yet, that, there's that something special about that, that call to remember. He is the infinite reality. He's not just God. Don't we need that? Don't we need that so often? I challenge you, look through the Psalms. Look through the Psalms. Gaze, just pick this, this title out and gaze upon it. And look at the context. Look at the circumstance and situation and how it calls us to meditate upon him. Oh, feeble humanity like us need that so much. We need to be called to look upon him. I'm just going to, for sake of time, I'm going to give you a few references and not read them. Uh, Psalm 9 also talks about El Elyon, the Most High God. Verse 3, I will praise your name, O Most High. I encourage you to go just enjoy it. Just, just call your soul to remember his transcendent truth. Oh, it's so important. Psalm 57 as well. This psalm begins this way. To the choir master, according to do not destroy. I love that when I see that in the psalm. Like, don't destroy this. This is so important. A miktam of David. Look what it says. It gives us some context. When he fled from Saul in the cave. And, all right, I'm going to read just a, just a little bit. Just because I got to. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by. I'm going to stop here before I read the next verse. You know how I started this? How big 
is your God? How big is your Jesus? Listen, it's a beautiful poetic phrase. It's calling us. But just to affirm it means nothing unless as you affirm it, it calls you back to saying his infinite truths. So in verse 2, he says, I cry out to God most high, El Elyon. David is placing him, our God, in proper priority. There's so much in the psalm. I love it. But just think about the context. Go back. Meditate on it. This might be a great Sunday solitude. Psalm 83 as well. Verse 18 says, That men may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, proper name of God. And then it says this, Art El Elyon. Or actually, just Elion, the most high over all the earth. Also, Psalm 91, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the most high, Elion, shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Psalm 21, 7, the king trusteth in the Lord, and through the mercy of Elion, he shall not be moved. Psalm 50, 14, uh, there's so many wonderful, wonderful things that we could say about our God. It's that calling of the soul to come back to reality. To acknowledge what our circumstantial reality is, and that's exactly that, circumstantial. And then enter into eternal reality. Do you see Him? Do you gaze upon Him? Do you come into this building and say, I will gaze upon Christ. You know how many times I come in here and I don't desire to be here? How many times I don't want to sing that song again? Like we've sang it 50 times this semester already. And that's when I begin to cry out. Hey, I will bless the Lord. I have a right to worship Him in spirit and in truth. I will bless the Lord. I have a right. He is God Oh, God, be exalted in our midst. Be exalted. Be the Most High God. Because it's only when we become familiar and He becomes small, He becomes like us, that we lose our awe and joy of worshiping Him. Well, let's finish with this. I started out reading a passage from Luke talking about the necessity of Christ being God. And I had several different things I wanted to say, but let me just say this instead. Proverbs, and Isaac, if you want to go ahead and come on up, we'll let's just try to get it, we'll try to transition pretty quick here. Proverbs says that there are some things that are an abomination to God. Like, he cannot abide them, period. And one of them is a false weight, a false balance. But let me ask you. You all believe that you're righteous, 
Can I have your attention real quick? Thanks. You believe you have righteousness, and so do I. We've walked in here, and if he is not righteous, we have no hope. But that sets up a huge problem, because if God cannot have a false balance, how in the world did he take care of your sin? You know, the atheist and the agnostic have it right when they say, how can a man, sorry, how can a man suffer for a few hours? I don't care how bad that suffering was. How can a man suffer for a few hours and then you here today be counted righteous? That is a gross injustice. That is absolutely unjust. That's wrong. I mean, at best, how could a, how many people could one perfect man save? At best, the answer is like zero. But let's just let's just give some benefit, maybe one other. And yet, you think you have righteousness today? It doesn't work like that. God Himself hates that. Romans chapter 3 reminds us that God had to be just and justify the ungodly. Well, there's only one way. Jesus had to be God. Because if he was truly God, he's worth more than everything else he has created. And if he's worth more than not only all humanity, but all creation, all the universe, the stars, everything in the firmament put together, he is worth more. If you put that Christ, that God-man, on the other side of the scale, you have righteousness complete. And that is something to think about. Your Jesus must be the Most High like Zechariah prophesied. And you will be the prophet of El Elyon, the Most High God. Oh, that's good news. We're going to finish our time singing. And I'm asking you to rejoice in the fact that Christ has, He is El Elyon, and you have an absolute, perfect, complete righteousness. And you need not seek for anything else. It has nothing now to do with our performance. We don't have to worry about how we can be lovely to God anymore. Because Christ is altogether lovely. He is altogether worthy. And he is the most high. Incalculably valuable. Let's delight in that today. Let's glory in that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have received a perfect righteousness from our God, Jesus Christ. If he's not truly God and truly man, we have no hope. But our delight today is that he is El Elyon. He is the Most High. John the Baptist was a forerunner of God incarnate, taking on our form and still maintaining his incalculable worth and value that we can stand here with complete confidence and assured joy in the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I cry out that there would be an overwhelming joy, a glory, Lord, a smile that just kind of just 
finds its way on our face when we begin to think about as we as we go about our day we're working on cars whacking weeds uh, changing diapers washing dishes and again and again we would be brought back to the reality of the most high the one who is perfect in all value and he is worthy and deserves to be my righteousness you made him who knew no sin to be sin for me that we could be the righteous of God in Him because He is God. God the Son. We thank you in your precious name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday. 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellersley campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.